0: Hey guys, you're going to love this episode of The Ethics Experts. We have Joey Coleman, author of Never Lose a Customer Again, Never Lose an Employee Again, talking about employee experience, talking about what organizations get wrong and why it's so difficult for us to be flexible with the uh, employees that are entrusted to us. Uh, Enjoy.
1: Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be.
0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the ethics experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you're a returning subscriber, hey, bestie, hope you're having an amazing day. You look beautiful today. So how does that sound? When you subscribe to the ethics experts, look at that, you get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So join us as we change the world by making our workplaces better. I got a real treat for you today. Uh, We are meeting uh, with Joey Coleman. How's it going, Joey? It is going incredibly
1: well. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: So I got first introduced to Joey during my 100-book challenge of 2020 when I read uh, the first book I've heard about uh, from you, Joey, which was Never Lose a Customer Again. And I was telling you in the pre-show that I just really loved the book so much. I thought you really hit the nail on the head. And um, we ended up reading it You know, every single... Uh, every like every other Thursday we have a learning Summit in our company where everybody gets together and we go through books and that was one that I that we all read together last year so uh when I heard about this book I was super excited to dive into it this book is never lose an employee again and uh really excited to get you on and you know hear your story on how you became an author and how these principles that um can really you know, lay a great foundation for a, uh, a phenomenal employee experience can be, you know, actualized and utilized in, uh, our listeners workplaces. So, uh, welcome. I love it. Thanks so much. And that sounds like a great plan. Let's dive in. So, you know, I'd love to start a little bit with that first book of, uh, you know, never lose a customer again. Maybe you can share a little of your story on, you know, did you always want to be an author? What, what, <laughs> what, what, uh, what drew you to, you know, having to
1: put that work out? Well, I've I've always been a fan of books, right? I was a reader at a young age, and uh, w- had the pleasure of growing up in a household where I was surrounded by books. So I always loved this idea of a book being able to capture and condense what someone knows about something, and I still think it is the most impressive, most valuable vehicle for transmitting information. We can put all the ideas, all the experience, all the trial and error, all the stuff we figured out along the way into a book. And you can take someone's life's work and condense it into several hours of your reading. And so I've gotten a ton of value from books. I'm a voracious reader. I try to read at least a book a week, if not more. And I always thought it would be fun to have a book. I started doing a lot of consulting and speaking in the space of customer experience. And I'd been doing it for quite a while. And regularly having audience members come up after speeches and say, oh, I loved your speech. Can I buy your book? And I didn't have a book. And this kept happening and kept happening. And finally, I was like, I need to make the time to write the book. So I wrote Never Lose a Customer Again, was thrilled when we hit Wall Street Journal number two when it came out, had great success with the book. Five years later, the book is still being used uh, by organizations around the world. It's still selling incredibly well. People and it's having the exact impact that I hoped it would have, which is to be a guidebook for how to create remarkable experiences that will stand the test of time and to have a book that was evergreen in its nature. Hopefully. 30 years from now somebody could pick up the book and still find value still find uh you know <clears throat> first principles core ideas that are applicable to every business in every industry imaginable once you, know- you- go ahead
0: no, no. I was just going to say, I mean, you know, when I'm thinking back to that book, what I really loved about it and why I was like, we absolutely have to read it is for some of the, those reasons that you just said, it wasn't sort of so myopic where, it, you know, it would fade away. It was very principled, you know, the pillars of the book where I thought could be applicable obviously to a number of different businesses and industries. And uh, it was just very digestible. And I also love, you know, I, I am uh, unfortunately somebody who does judge a book by its cover and I just love the <laughs> cover art. I thought that that was so cool. Oh, um, uh,
1: thank you. I appreciate that. We we had a lot of fun creating that and spent a lot of time on it. And and my goal was to, uh, as you mentioned, I I ran an ad agency and a design shop and a branding shop for 15 plus years. And so I really had an idea of what I wanted the design aesthetic of the book to be uh, and the cover to be. So I'm thrilled that that was your experience of it. Um, So walk I want to hear a little
0: bit more about your story at some point you you were doing these speeches and the audience was coming up to meet you and you know thanking you and asking for your book. you know, you've alluded to this design agency. Was it in that business that you realized that there was this gap in, in kind of customer experience? Talk to us about how those light bulbs turned on and how you developed this passion for uh, customer experience? because, you know, I think you know, being a business operator myself, the client experience and the employee experience, those are different sides of the same sort of membrane. That's, you know, we have Absolutely. this sort of, you know, in the past, there was this massive gap uh, between this membrane and what the, you know, what we showed externally versus what sort of people experience internally. These are just different stakeholder groups. And this membrane, I think, has collapsed a lot. But talk to us about, like, how you started to get a passion for customer experience.
1: Yeah. So my career path has been incredibly eclectic. I was a criminal defense lawyer. I worked for the US Secret Service. I worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. I worked in the White House Office of Counsel to the President. I was a criminal defense lawyer. I worked in business consulting. Uh, I ran an ad agency. I ran a division of a promotional products company. I taught at the postgraduate level. I've been a speaker. Like I've had all these crazy careers and crazy jobs. But what? The common thread that connects all of these together is in every job I've ever had, the way you succeeded was by having a keen understanding of the human condition. Why do humans do the things they do? And what can we do to convince, persuade, encourage them to do the things we'd like them to do, right? When I was in the intelligence community, how can I convince you to tell me things that you might not want to tell me? When I was a criminal defense lawyer, how can I convince a jury to believe that my guy is not guilty when they want it, they're predisposed to think that, He is guilty. And so, in each of these jobs, I realized that the experience we create when interacting with other humans is often the core element of their relationship with us. What's it like to hang out with Nick? What's it like to talk to Nick? Does Nick make me feel good? You know, we start the podcast with, you know, a nice compliment of everybody's looking good. It's fun, it's playful, it's engaging. It speaks about who you are, your brand and what you're trying to bring to the show. And so the more I realize that, the more I realize that many organizations aren't thinking strategically about the experiences they create. They're creating experiences all day, every day for their customers, for their employees, for their vendors, for their significant other, for their spouse, for their kids, for their parents, their siblings. We go through our lives creating experiences. But I think very few people ever take the time to say, what kind of experiences do I want to be known for? What kind of experiences do I want to create? And how can I be strategic and tactical in designing the interactions I have with other people? And that's what led me on this journey. And I'm running my ad agency and I'm realizing most ad agencies are designed to fill the funnel. How do we get you more prospects? How do we get you more customers? How do we get more leads? Very few spend any time thinking about, well, what happens after the sale is made? How can we help you keep your customers? How can we help you with your retention? How can you, we help you with ongoing development of that relationship with a customer? And that's what led me on this journey. That's what led to the book. And to your point about the membrane, I agree. I often think of customer experience and employee experience as two sides of the same coin. 100%. Yeah. With the idea being that as we improve one, we necessarily improve the value of the other. If you have great employees that love coming to work, your customers are going to love doing business with you because they're going to show up to do business and your employees are going to treat them well and they're going to feel great about it. We've all also had that experience as customers where we walk into a place and it's clear that the employees hate their jobs. They mm-hmm. hate working here. And what does that do to our experience as a customer? Well, I don't want to shop here. I don't want to do this. If you don't like it here, if this is miserable here, I don't want to be part of it either. So I think these things all connect with each other. You're muted, Nick. Just, you know.
0: I do think it's two sides of the same coin for sure, but I... I wonder if uh, it matters which side you focus on first. Because I what I see, I see a lot of organizations really have this sort of external focus and they're focused on this external brand and the sort of client experience. And they don't recognize that it's two sides of the same coin. And they think that there are these two different sort of stakeholder groups. And then there's these massive inconsistencies. All this focuses, look, I am all about client for sure. We, we flip our org chart upside down where the boss is the client. But to your point, I know that I'm never gonna have an organization or I'm never gonna have a company that my clients love if it's not full of people that love it first. Like the employees have to have a great experience first because they're the they're the day-to-day manifestation of whatever this brand you know is, right? Do you agree? Do you think you have to like look at them together or like holistically, or you, you have to start with the employee side? Like, how do you look at that sort of like which side's heads and which side's tails
1: or something? Yeah, or, or which which side is, you know, the chicken, which side is the egg, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, here, so a couple thoughts on that. Number one, I think in most organizations on the planet today, it is easier to have a conversation about customer experience than employee experience. And it's easier for a couple reasons. Number one, when we have that conversation, we can all get an alignment that it's about doing what's in the best interest of the customer. Number two, there've been consultants and speakers and authors that have been touting the importance of customer service and customer experience for decades. So it's an easier message. That being said, I believe the employee experience message is even more important. Why? Because if we don't have employees, we're not going to be able to have that many customers. If you're a solo entrepreneur, you can have a couple of customers and you can slowly grow, but delivering anything appreciable, you're gonna need more people on the team to do it. If we start losing our employees, it crushes our ability to deliver that experience to our customers. Now, on the contrary, if we have a remarkable employee experience and a great culture and our employees love it, if we lose a customer, which we're trying not to, we can get another customer easier, faster and with less headache and heartache than getting another employee. And so I think it does make sense to put the employee experience first. I just think that that hasn't been as big of a focus uh, throughout the world of business globally in the past. And it's increasingly becoming that focus due to a number of factors that have kind of made it more of an employee's market than an employer's market, especially over the last two or three years.
0: Yeah, I think that's a big factor. And I think also this shift into knowledge work where our employees are their work. We talk about this all the time. We're not, you know, the average, you know, uh, American employee is not just like pulling a lever and stamping out like a piece of metal anymore, right? So to the extent that we become our work and we take that home with us and to your point over the last couple of years, we've seen the great resignation and, you know, hybrid work coming out of COVID and all that kind of stuff it becomes increasingly important for organizations to get it right. And your book, you talk about kind of the, this massive, massive, you know, it's so interesting to me because it's so clear to me, you know what I'm saying? Uh, It's obviously so clear to you. You're such a pattern recognition guy where you've been able to, you know, see this through line through all these different, you know, diverse experiences and tie it down to the human condition and recognize it's how people feel at those various, those different realms that you've participated in that really, um, activates sort of any sort of, you know, incremental engagement or incremental sales or or all those kinds of things, you recognize that it's kind of bizarre to me that the average organization, to your point, still struggles to see the value in creating a great client or a a great employee experience. See, I just did it myself, Uh, a great employee experience. Um, Do you think it's because, you know, clients are sort of psychologically tied to money more quickly? Do you think it's because there's this like massive you know, uh, level of, you know, employee disengagement, which is really a silent killer. It's like riding a bike with like deflated tires that you just get kind of used to. You think it's kind of a cost to do business. Like why hasn't this massive light bulb turned on? Like everyone's light bulb is turned on about websites or like marketing, right? but everyone's light bulb is not turned on about employee experience. Why, what is that?
1: Yeah, that it's a it's a fantastic question, Nick. And regrettably, I don't think there's a single answer. I think it's a confluence of dozens of different factors. A couple of them that come to mind immediately. Number one, most leaders are leading in a world that is drastically drastically different than the world they came up in. So you've got leaders saying, we got to get back to the office. I worked 70 hours a week in the office. I sat in this cubicle for 10 years before I was promoted. You got to do what I did. And it's like, that's not the world we live in. In the same point, to use your website analogy, if we said you can't use the internet anymore, most business leaders would be like, oh my God, that's crippling. We can't do that. But most of the C-suite executives didn't have the internet when they started in business. Most of the people that are in their 60s, the internet didn't exist when they were in their 20s, or at least it wasn't as widely distributed as it is now. And so I think there's that factor at play. I also think there's a factor at play of employees. How shall I say this without sounding overly judgmental? Well, I'll do my best. Do your best and (laughs) We'll do my best. I think as a planet employers created the problems that they're having. Employers said they wanted loyalty from the employees, but they didn't deliver loyalty to those employees. Employers said, come work with us. We have this big vision. We want to be a part of the team. And then if you didn't fit in and do it exactly the way they were hoping, you got fired and let go. Now, I'm not saying you have to keep all your employees. Let's be clear. The title of the book is Never Lose an Employee Again, not keep all your people, okay? There's a distinction there. What I am saying is, We have created a bit of this situation where employees often have this kind of more mercenary approach where they'll jump from job to job to job. And the reason they're jumping from job to job usually is not for more money. It's for more opportunity. It's for more growth. It's for more development. It's for more experiences, more skill set acquisition, things that could happen at their existing employer if their existing employer was treating them like a human as opposed to a cog in the machine. So I think there's a couple things at play. Last thing I think that is at play is the globalization of the planet. We are living at a time that is unprecedented in human history for a number of reasons. But let's drill down on just one. If we were to roll back the clock 50 years, just 50 years, the vast majority of humans worked for an employer whose headquarters was within 20 miles of their home that's where most people worked you worked in the town that you lived you worked for maybe you went over to the next town but you probably worked there and you probably worked for an organization that was smaller now we have global enterprises now we have a company you know there's a company i profile in my book that has 30 employees across 17 time zones globally Okay, this is a small company, 30 employees, but 17 time zones globally. They don't have any more than two people in any one country on the planet. And they're a very successful agency. So we've changed the landscape in that now, to your point about pulling a lever and pressing a punch, we now can work for an employer anywhere, especially if we're a knowledge worker. And increasingly, to your point, most jobs are becoming knowledge worker jobs. A lot of the physical labor jobs are being automated, are being simplified, are being systematized that we don't need as many humans to run the assembly line. But we do need humans to be connecting to all the supply chain and figuring out when shipments are due and all these pieces. And that those conf- that confluence of factors, I think, is what's created the environment we find ourselves in today.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty good uh, rundown of it. Um, we did a. Uh, we were working with a uh, potential client on an anti-retaliation campaign. So we saw from some research that over fifty percent of people that turned over during the Great Resignation, on a primary or secondary basis, did so due to some like values-based thing. They didn't feel like they had a voice. To your point, they weren't treated like a human being. There wasn't a two-way street. They saw this, you know, really nice and shiny code of conduct with all the beautiful pictures and this beautiful webpage that lists all these values, but. Those aspirational values are not what they experienced, and with the ease with which people can change jobs, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. labor mobility or the the cost of changing a job is lower than it's ever been in history. I I, I would imagine. Yeah, um, people are saying, well, that 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 grass can't be, you know, that brown over there. Like that looks pretty green. I'm going to go ahead and roll the dice. How much worse could it be, right? Um, and this organization it had about a hundred thousand employees. And we calculated super conservatively, actually using the Gallup and the Sherm numbers, which I think you reference in your book, pretty conservatively, they spent something like 500 million, or like the cost of turnover was somewhere between 500 million and 800 million for their organization. I mean, that's a massive, massive number. That's, huge, huge <laughs> that's, number. That's not even close. Like. A fraction of that dedicated to like an employee relations department that is super thoughtful about that, that employer journey. Like, again, if you if if the average organization took a modicum of the focus and intentionality that they place on the buyer journey and put a little of that onto the employee experience, there would be all of that falls to the bottom line. The turnover drops, the employee engagement drops, you start to get that uh I mean, I can go on and on about this, but like-
1: Productivity increases, profitability increases, efficiency increases, all these amazing things happen if you just pay attention to your people. Right. It's that simple and it's that challenging, right? I I, I want to acknowledge, if you've got 100,000 employees, you actually have a city. You don't have a yeah, company, a you have a city. And right. at 100,000 employees, you have to start thinking about things like, How many of our employees are going to die this year? Because statistically at that size, you're going to be dealing with that. How many of our employees are going to get married? How many are going to have a baby? How many are going to move to a different jurisdiction? How many are going to deal with an aging parent's health issues? Any number of things that are affecting the employee experience. Now, the typical employer says, well, Joey, that's their personal time. That that doesn't apply to me. I think the employers of choice in the future are going to be the ones who care as much about what happens between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. as they care about what happens between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. while you're at work. We need to think more strategically about the relationships we have with our people. We need to be more focused on creating personal and emotional connections with them. And we need to acknowledge that work is part of their life, it is not the only part of their life
0: that distinction is so important because to your point it's just one aspect of their life and you said something important we said a lot of important things but it's one life there's not a work life and a home life and you know it's one life and it's an in in that one life the lines between those
1: different realms have like absolutely disintegrated now like it's totally disintegrated and let's be honest who started the disintegration nick the companies, uh, yeah. the company say, is saying, yeah. we need you to stay late tonight to do some extra work. The company is saying, hey, you've got your phone and you're on vacation. Can you dial in for this conference call? The company is saying, exactly. since we have email on your phone, it'd be great if you could respond to emails at night after the kids go to bed. Like companies thought nothing of asking their people to work outside of the bounds of their prescribed work hours. But the second employees started to say, I'd like to work from home and maybe I can throw a load of laundry in during the day. Suddenly, all these managers are like, oh, we got to measure productivity. We got to have a different conversation about what we're doing. Wait, what? How right. did that happen? It's good for the goose. It should be good for the gander. Like You, you got to be willing to say, if we can blur it this way, you should be able to blur it the other way. And to your point, that's how we acknowledge the holistic nature of the human condition. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. Sometimes the good is going to be caused by work. Sometimes the good is going to be caused by personal. Sometimes the bad is going to be caused by work. Sometimes the bad is going to be caused by personal. But at the end of the day, you're still the same human. We've got to meet folks where they're at and figure out what we can do to embrace every aspect of their personality and every aspect of their humanity to have the biggest impact on our organizations. Yeah, we're not these automatons that can just be coded. And
0: uh, I mean, we're these complex machines. Each human being is this sort of complex machine. And if I get in a fight with my wife or I have a grandparent that dies, I can't just like leave that in the car. That's going to be with me. And that's going to be in the back of my mind, you know, and not everybody, you know, I work with some, my brother is actually really good at this of like compartmentalizing things and he can like compartmentalize it and he can put it there and he can like revisit it later. I am not that way at all. Like it's just all like one big kind of, you know, amorphous
1: mess. And You know, what's so fascinating, Nick, is these are two guys that are brothers. Exactly. So the DNA similarities between you two are significantly greater than the similarities of any of a coworker or a colleague who's not genetically related to you and still two totally different manifestations, totally different personalities, totally different approaches to how you compartmentalize, how you handle stress, how you process things, how you deal with things, et cetera.
0: I have just found that, you know, being a little bit like more flexible, it just makes it such a nicer way to work with folks. Um, I don't know. I mean, I am not a, uh, I'm not like a balance sheet guy. You know, you worked, you know, you took off 20 minutes this day, you owe me another 20 minutes. I just don't think that's how anybody actually works anymore. Why do you think, I mean, do you think it's just this old style thinking where, you know, people are labor units and they, you know, we... We, for some reason, think about them, act, you know, maybe implicitly or subconsciously as cogs in the machine and everybody's replaceable and so forth. Like, do you think that is some of the like foundational, uh, you know, reasons for this, what I would say is a misconception by like the average, you know, leader in the,
1: in our, our economy or what? I I think there's, again, a couple of factors at play. I mean, I do think the shift from an agrarian society to an industrialized society, which occurred in many places in the world, if not now most, uh, created this environment where we went from thinking about things that would happen slowly over time i.e., I put the seed in the ground, I water it, I let it grow, it grows, it grows, it grows, it grows. Okay, I can harvest it and have the benefit to how many things can we crank out off this assembly line in the next hour? And I think that shift that occurred also made us start thinking differently about the inputs. We can't make it, you know, there are things you can do to make corn grow in a field faster, right? But most of them start to cause problems. Yeah, right. You yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do all the watering today. No, <laughs> you can't do all the watering today. Now you've flooded it out and you have a bigger issue. So some of the things you need to stable, but in a factory setting, oh well, we can run the factory three eight-hour shifts. We can run it morning, noon, and night. Right. Oh, now we can produce outside of the bounds of sunlight. And that was a huge shift as a species. We had never really done that before, and now we could do that. Electrification allowed us to do that. You know, the distribution of the internet and connectivity allowed us to do that. You know, you used to talk about companies chasing the sun. It's because they had locations around the world. The age that theory of the sun never sets on the British Empire. It was because there were British outposts and British territories all around the world. This type of mentality, I think, is what led to every minute of every day needs to be productive. We are human beings, not human doings. And that in effect, I think has caused a lot of the challenges we see in the workplace today. That was so good.
0: Yeah. Human beings, not, not, not human doings and this like short-term mentality, this short-termism, this sort of just in time mentality, which has like infiltrated everybody's thinking of how can we maximize product? Look, I run a for-profit organization. You have you know, throughout your career, we, I definitely want to make money and make money for our investors and broaden our company and broaden our impact and so forth. But you said something interesting. It's like going back to that agrarian mindset, you know, it's like, it's almost the more we can shift back to that agrarian mindset, which was like, obviously based on like naturalism and natural like laws. Uh, if we can circle back to that, It allows us to have a different sort of framework on how we look at everything. You know, you can start to have a longer term focus. You don't plant an acorn and get a tree overnight. You don't plant a corn and, you know, get a whole field overnight. And you can also start to separate what you can control and what you can't control. I can't control the harvest, but I can control how I plant these seeds and how I tend to that plot of land or whatever. And I think finally it forces us to think a little bit more long term. You plant the seeds yes. in the beginning in the spring and like you don't get that benefit till later. This short-termism that's crept into everybody's mind is like bizarre. You you throw people out too quick. Uh it's just like this anxiety-riddled like way of being. It's 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 like it's like a cortisol fuel. It's like the only fuel
1: is cortisol. It's just exactly. and then we wonder why our workplaces are broken. It's just uh hundred percent. I mean, the ch- the challenge with always stepping down on the gas is you get used to going at light speed at all times, right. like constantly going faster. And that's the only way to create improvement. I've found it fascinating for years that, you know, here in the United States, the drive often is, well, what are we doing this quarter? I had a call with somebody earlier today and I said, how's it, how's it going? He said, uh, it's off to a great start for the quarter. And I thought to myself, wow, that's, you're viewing your life in three-month blocks. Counterpose that against the uh, experience in Japan where they write 500-year business plans. Right. 500-year. Now, in a 500-year business plan, what happens this quarter is completely inconsequential. What happens this year? Completely inconsequential. What happens this decade? Okay, finally, we should probably start paying attention. If we started thinking in decades instead of quarters,
0: right.
1: it makes a lot of our business choices very different. And you know, to be candid, I run into this in my own personal life as a yeah. business owner as well. I get paid to travel around the world and give speeches. That means I'm on the road a lot. I have two boys, a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. So my days away from home are necessarily days away from them. Well, if I'm thinking about this quarter, my goal is to be on the road as many days as possible, give as many speeches as possible, maximize the revenue. But if I look at this and say, my seven-year-old is going to be living under my roof statistically for 11 more years, and he's going to be excited to hang out with me statistically for about four more years, maybe six if I'm really lucky, that changes the conversation. Right. That changes the dynamic. I can give speeches a decade from now, when my boys are off to college or living their lives, doing their careers, whatever they're going to be doing. I can't get this moment back, right? And I think more organizations would benefit from taking the longer-term philosophy. And looking at what they're really trying to accomplish over decades or centuries instead of being overly fixated on what did you do this week or what are we doing this month?
0: Yeah, it's, uh, but you have to like let go a little bit in order to
1: do that. Oh, you have to let go a lot of it, Nick. You gotta, and and you gotta let go in a world that's not encouraging you to let go. You Which is your phone. Of- How many alerts have we gotten since we started recording this podcast? Like everything in the external world is saying, pay attention. This is important. Focus on this right now. Do this right now. If we're trying to slow down and even become seasonal, even think of it as just in a year, right. let alone 500 years, we are going against so many of the structures that exist in our day-to-day lives. And that's where I think it's, it's interesting from an ethics point of view. Right. So let's look at it this way. One of my, I, I, and help me with the phrase, because I'm paraphrasing here, but something to the effect of, you know, your reputation needs to be built over years, but can be lost in a minute. Right. Right. And same with ethics. Your ethical behavior and your ethical choices is something that you build over time. You can lose it in a heartbeat by making a certain choice or taking a certain action. I would rather have us be thinking strategically about what we're building over time instead of racing around to all these quick hit dopamine fixes, cortisol hits, where we're like, oh, I did this, I did this, I did that. And instead say, what can we do? One of my favorite Tony Robbins quotes is um, people often overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I think that's so true. Like start playing in decades. It changes the game. Yeah. That does change the game.
0: Um, man, that's so cool. That's so cool to start thinking about it that way. And I, and again, I think as you can shift to a longer term focus, now there's just like a lot more budget and a lot more room to say, no, I'm not going to do that speech and I'm going to stay home and go to the, go to my kid's baseball game or, okay, you're in a tough season, you know, employee, you're, you're, you're in a tough season due to a death in the family or a miscarriage or something horrific. Well, there there's room for that. There's room for, yes. and, and again, like, the employee loyalty that comes back to an organization, like okay. if you just want to get super pragmatic about it, like yeah. you know, the loyalty
1: that like comes back, like pays for itself ten x easily. Exactly, you know easily, easily. And even if, even if that employee that you showed loyalty to ends up leaving, and you feel as a leader like oh, that was disloyal, that was disingenuous. You know who saw you being loyal? Exactly. The other workers. That's a great other team members. So if, you know, I know many leaders and I empathize with this. I've been a business owner for 20 plus years at this point. When an employee leaves, it hurts. Totally, We feel betrayed. Yeah. We feel like, oh, we made this investment and you left. Why don't you like me anymore? But as long as we're doing our best to make the right choices, our other team members are witnessing that. That's, and we I, I hadn't we hadn't thought about that that's discount great. yeah we discount their ability to look at something and go well yeah you know john left but geez, look how many chances joey gave him like look how much joey stood by him and thank god i, I if I'm, if i'm ever in that position i hope joey stands by me the same way that's that's the conversation you want your team to be having yeah
0: i think that's right and i think you know just like your kids are always watching the employees are always watching and everyone's all you know we're all like we're like these pattern rec- recognition machines, you know? Yes. Um, when I first got into this role, um, I really wanted our company, me and my brother, we really wanted our company to be, you know, an amazing place to work. We wanted everyone, whether you stayed here for two months or 20 years, to be able to look back at your time and just say, wow, that, that was a really special place. That that place felt different. And I inevitably got into a situation that you're just talking about where you know, I thought I really stood by this employee. I thought I really bent over backwards for them and went to bat for them time and time and time again. And they left and it was really messy. And I, you know, I felt, I I felt myself sort of standing at this crossroads and saying like, is, is all of this worth it? Because like, it definitely takes time and effort and intentionality and like, you know, brain calories or whatever you want to call them to like tr- even try to get this type of a, of a train moving. And I, I remember sort of standing at this crossroads and saying like, is this even worth it? Or, you know, is the way that everybody else does it, like, am I stupid for kind of doing this, this way? You know, because like not everybody has that as, you know, as high, at least as we've tried to place it on our priority list, you know? Um, And I think I was talking with, with my brother and we just decided, you know what, we're not doing it to get that, that one in particular, um, you know employee to say wow this place is great we're doing it because that's the type of organization we want to be irrespective of of what happens and like making that sort of like principled based decision to say like well this is just the type of company we're going to be this is the yes. type of leader that I'm going to be irrespective of whether I get burned and I'm going to get burned over time and I'm going to put trust in people that aren't going to live up to it or whatever um, has been like really freeing because then I'm, then I don't feel like
1: I need to like keep track of it anymore. You know what I'm saying? I could just say, well, 100%. Just do- yeah. Yeah. The, the mental bandwidth, the, how do I lock into everything that happens as right. a full global decision, as opposed to, no, we're going to have some first principles. We're going to have some core values and these are going to be our guiding light. What I find fascinating about this, Nick is so many people Are quick in an employee context to say, Well, I did that and I got burned, so I'm never going to do that again. Right. Okay. Yeah. Counter, just to pose that against, for example, oh, I don't know, drinking alcohol. The number of people that might drink alcohol have a really rough go of it, and then they're like, I'm never doing that again. And then they're back at it a week later. Right. I think it's fascinating that when it Relates to other people, especially as business leaders, we take their departure or their whatever we define as their expression of lack of loyalty or lack of dedication as being a global commentary on humanity. Great point. As opposed to just saying, what else was going on in this person's life at that time? That's one of my favorite questions to ask. When I see someone behaving in a way that I don't understand or seems, you know, counter to my worldview or my perspective. What I try to do, I'm not always successful at this, but what I try to do is first go, what is going on in their life that I don't know about? I had this conversation. We were talking about my boys earlier. Lots of times we were driving to school a few months ago and a car cut us off. Okay. This happens when you're driving, right? Car cut us off. And we have a couple of choices as drivers when we get cut off, right? And so I slammed on the brakes. We got things situated. The car pulls, you know, the car kept going. Didn't even see that he had cut us off, just kind of cut in front of us. And my boys were like, daddy, what, you know, what just happened? Is everything okay? I said, yeah, that car just kind of cut us off. And one of my sons said, well, that wasn't very nice of that driver. I said, I don't disagree, but do you think the driver knew? And it created this whole conversation about, did the driver even know? Did the driver see us? Was it intentional? Was it unintentional? And then that led to a conversation of what else could be going on in that driver's life. And I was really proud. One of my sons said, "Well, maybe they're going to a hospital because someone they love is really sick and dying." Like exactly. If every time we got cut off on the road, we said, "That person is racing to the hospital to say goodbye to a loved one before they die." I think the amount of road rage we experience on the highways would decrease dramatically. If every time somebody sent an email that we were like, "Ooh, that that didn't feel good to read or receive that email," we said wow, what else is going on in that person's life? Did they maybe type that email on their phone while they were sitting in a hospital? Did they maybe type that email on their phone while they were waiting to pick up their kids from the third event they had taken them to and the parent is just saying, oh my gosh, if if I could have five minutes to myself, it'd be amazing, but no, I'm running from one thing to the next, pillar to post. If we are willing to embrace that other people are not living the exact same lives we are and come to the conversation from a place of empathy, life just gets easier. It gets better. It gets less emotional. It gets more understanding.
0: Yeah. And I, I love the saying that like grace is free. And I definitely, kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, like if I'm having a bad day, I kind of expect people to cut me some slack. You know what I'm saying? Because it's yeah. like, man, if you knew the context of this thing or what I'm going through, you'd be a monster to not cut me that slack. And so if grace is free, it should be free both ways, you know, and it doesn't cost a lot for us to like extend a little bit of grace for folks, especially folks that we've, you know, kind of brought into the fold. um, Yeah, I just uh, I love that question. You know, what what might that person been be going through or something? Um, how do you balance, though, this like provision of grace uh, with you know, performance management, because at some point, you know, to your point from earlier in the conversation, this is never, you know, the book is never, never lose an employee again, not keep everybody. It doesn't mean that everything growing in in your garden is a flower. So how do you balance that? And how do you get to kind of a high confidence interval that, okay, this person is actually a weed.
1: We need to weed this garden. I think two ways. Number one, we need to get clear on what our core beliefs, our core values, our first principles are. I absolutely think it's okay to say in an organization, these are the standards by which we need to perform or else you're not going to be a good fit in this system. I saw a video on Instagram the other day of somebody saying, I only hire people with six pack abs. And I thought, and he's like, see, we have a standard at our organization. And I'm like- Was this the car guy? I, I don't know who it was. <laughs> I, I, I want to, and, and if I did, I don't know that I'd share their name. But the moral of the story here, I was like, there's a difference between creating criteria that makes sense and criteria that are just for the sake of having criteria. And I think a lot of organizations create criteria for the sake of having criteria. Oh, to apply for this job, you have to have a four-year degree and have worked for three years in this industry and blah, blah, blah. Do they really need all that stuff? Like maybe it's true that they do, but I'm not sure that it is. And so we need to think about what the difference between what we want versus what we need and 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 how we're balancing that. I think the other thing is, it's useful to recognize that statistically and frankly probably practically most of your employees aren't going to start and end their careers at your company great point yep nor should they i don't i don't want people to come and work for me as their first job after you know as they enter the working world and to work here until the day they die why well because I like to think I create a great experience for my team members, but I also know that I want them to have as rich of a life experience as possible. And there are a lot of other employers and a lot of other companies doing different things. And I want them to try and find the thing that they love and lights them up. And the thing that lights you up at 20 is probably not the same thing that lights you up at 30, at 40, at 50, at 60. And that's okay. We need to stop, I think, demonizing this thought that what you believed then is what you believe now. What interested you then is what interests you now. Humans are an evolving organism. We're an evolving species. And I like the idea of creating the space for that. Where I think it hits performance is we need to look at it and say, all right, we are bringing together a team for a fixed period of time with a goal of achieving this desired result. One of the analogies I love is to look at sports teams, right? So think about sports dynasties, pick your sport, any sport. There's probably a team that comes to mind is having dynastic runs where it's just year after year after year. They're doing incredibly well. If you actually look at the roster of the players during those times, it changed and it changed regularly. How is that possible, Joey? Those employees left? Yes, those employees left. Some left on their own accord. Some were sent out of the organization and new employees were brought in and new team members were brought in and indoctrinated into the way of doing things and into the system and to make it work. And so if we think a little less about, oh, I need this person to be part of my team forever and more about how can we work together to achieve this bigger goal, I think it shifts our emotional attachment to the retention and engagement on an individualized employee level.
0: That's such a phenomenal um, analogy because there's something, there's some kind of uh, ethereal thing that those dynastic teams had where even though there was some turnover on that roster, guys were able to plug into it and maybe have some of their best seasons. And the confluence of all of those efforts ended up leading to these phenomenal results time and time again. So, if then, that's the, that's the game, then our focus should be on creating that type of an environment where somebody, despite some kind of a turnover can thrive rather than handcuffing people to this organization
1: forever, you know? Exactly. And the better you get, the more you will become known as the place that really builds their team. And the more other people will come poaching for your folks. Right. Right. Um, If we look at college football, for example, there are a lot of people that will look at Nick Saban, the coach at University of Alabama, and for their football team and say, this is one of the greatest college football coaches to ever be. And I think there's a lot of data and a lot of research that proves, if not at the top, certainly in the top five, without debate, without discussion. But what happens to his players? Well, his players get drafted to the NFL. His players... Graduate from school. His players drop out from school. They leave the team. The longest you're going to be on a team, in a college football team, is maybe six years, maybe. And if you're good, probably three. But also look at his managers, i.e., the assistant coaches and the coordinators. What happens to those folks? Well, they're usually there for one to three years and they leave. And when they leave, it's the same thing. They've gone to another position, they've gone to another organization, they've gone to another job. And we can decide that that's a sign that they're not being loyal, or we can decide that that's a sign that he's doing his job incredibly well.
0: Well, think, you know, uh, there was a lot of stones that people threw at GE in like the late nineties, early two thousands about this, like turn, you know, uh, you know, they'd fire the bottom 10% and all that kind of stuff. However, just to kind of be kind of intellectually honest about it, while that might not sit well with folks, GE's like goal during that time. I mean, cause they had 50, you know, hundred different businesses that were competing in all these different markets. Like it was a massive conglomerate, but, um, and I had a friend who worked there and he, he, he attested to this, that their goal was to be a company that builds great managers. And so that right. is such an interesting shift because it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to just be building great managers, then inevitably these people are going to roll out and inevitably these people are going to go and do other things. And that sort of, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was a little, little bit of a paradoxical shift uh, in focus allowed for the creation of people that while there could be doing their jobs better. Uh, and it also allows for a little bit of like lighter hands or lighter grip on those people because to your point, they're 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 going to leave. Um, man, I could really talk to you forever. I just want to talk about one other thing here. Um, I'm sure you've read this book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel yes. Penn. Yeah. So- I just have this theory that like, it's it's his theory, I guess, but like we live thinking that like we're in system two, this is our logic brain. When in actuality, all of, you know, all of our decision-making really happens below that sort of conscious surface in system one, which is our instincts and stuff like that. And something that you've said time and time again, and it's just kind of like peppered throughout everything you say is it's really about, you know, you've talked about the human condition and how people feel and how can I make you feel comfortable you know, giving extra effort here and how can I feel comfortable, you know, in the secret service stuff, like sharing information you wouldn't otherwise uh, want to do it. Why is that, that feeling, which obviously is the basis for so much marketing, right? Marketing gets marketing, the external brand approach gets the importance of people feeling a certain way about our brand in order to engage with us. Uh, also we're able with marketing to understand that, Hey, I'm scattering a bunch of seeds and not all these seeds are going to, you know, take root. Why is that feel thing so hard
1: for us to like wrap our heads around with the employee side? I think a couple of reasons. Number one, feelings as a general premise are not logical we're trying to jump it out to the wrong system. We're talking about system one and we're trying to analyze it from a system two philosophy, yeah. Yeah. right? So we're, we're, we're in trouble before we even start. Number two, as you mentioned, and we're so kind to share about your experience compared to your brother's experience, every human is different. We can have a circumstance that absolutely takes one employee to their knees and another employee, it's like a gnat buzzing past their head. They're like, oh, that that was nothing. The exact same experience. Right. And so I think the opportunity that's available to us as leaders is to recognize that not all of our people are hardwired differently. Not all of our people are motivated by the same types of management. Not all of our people are motivated by the same types of uh, benefits and types of perks. And the opportunity for us is to say, can we build a team? where we're giving that team member what they need and they're giving the organization what the organization needs. And there's the flexibility and the malleability to adjust that on the fly to constantly be seeking optimization for both parties. What's the optimization for the organization? What's the optimization for the employee? I think historically what's happened is we've over-optimized for the employer or as an employee, we've over-optimized for ourselves instead of our organization, and it needs to be a more collaborative give and take. Well,
0: I guess on that, that's a great way to wrap it up, man. This was uh, this was awesome, Joey. Thank you so much for joining us on the Ethics Experts. You guys got to check out this book or both books, actually. I mean, I just uh, I've recommended Never Lose a Customer Again, and now I'm you know I really love this uh, this book as well. We didn't even get to get into the frameworks and so much in there but this was really a fun conversation. Joey, where can people find you? Is LinkedIn a great place? Is Yeah, uh... the,
1: in terms of social media, the best place to find me is at LinkedIn, Joey Coleman. Uh the other best great place to find me online is my website, joeycoleman.com. That's J O E Y like a baby kangaroo or a 5-year-old, you know. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation. JoeyColeman.com. There you'll find information on how to keep your customers, how to keep your employees, information about my books, my speeches, my workshops, that kind of thing. And I just wanted to say to everybody, thanks so much for listening in. And Nick, thanks again for a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I hope the listeners found some value in our conversations as well. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I love meeting an author whose book I love and they just like totally live up to my, uh, my hope. So they say don't meet your here, heroes but you can meet some some of your heroes. All right, we'll see you guys next time. Take care.